Welcome to the Jig is Up, and uh, tonight is a special occasion because we actually have Jason joining us. Hey, Jason. Hey, back at her again. How's the greatest beer down in Calgary? Not too bad. And you up there in Whitecourt? Staying frosty, my friend. Yeah, you posted a little uh, picture there, and you looked a little frosty up there. So. Yeah, we got only a couple feet of snow, so it's been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like you had a whole lot of fun plowing snow this weekend, so. That was me, Mr. Plow. <laughs> so, uh, we have a whole whack load of stuff to talk about. Um, let's start off with the a CBC article about an RCMP town hall in Saskatchewan. And basically, you know, they said it wasn't a response to the Colton Bushy verdict, but it just conveniently happens after the Colton Bushy verdict in rural Saskatchewan. And they basically, uh, they were fielding questions from farmers as to, uh, you know, the rising rampant crime wave ma- making its way through our, our uh, agricultural or urban, or sorry, rural areas. And um, everybody's talking about, is it okay to start shooting at people if you catch them on your property? And um, I don't know. I mean, is this what the law has come to? I think it has. Well, I think that this has always been the problem in Canada. The perception of the law and what the law actually is are two different things, but that doesn't change it. So people feel that that's what really happened with that verdict. And now they want to make sure, hey, if I can get a hold of a cop and ask him, is it is it true? You know. Yeah. And the problem is, though, is that's the real perception that came out of that ruling. Well, and at this point, how do they say it's not true when it's been proven in court that if you shoot somebody and kill them, you can get off? So that almost kind of negates the law right then and there. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, so the cops can go around and uh, try to do damage control so we don't have every redneck hillbilly farmer turning into some vigilante. But the, the truth is, as long as you can, you know, fumble your way through an accidental shooting, then, yeah, by all means, you know, pull out those pistols and have at her. Well, and actually, we had a shooting, uh, like, maybe even a week ago down in Okotoks here. And it was essentially the same thing. Some guys were trying to steal this guy's car, I think it was, and so he uh, he shot at them, and I think he hit the one guy in the arm or something. He didn't kill anybody, but the homeowner with the gun got charged with, you know, pointing a firearm, you know, um, whatever it is, mishandling a firearm, and a ton of firearm offenses, plus, you know, causing bodily injury and blah, blah, blah. And I find it interesting because I don't think any of those charges were laid in the Colton Bushy trial. Against uh, that guy, so none that I'm aware of. Like I think he had uh, has to go back to court if he hasn't already for just two uh, firearms related charges. And I know last time we talked, that was you know came up is how is that even possible that there's only two? <laughs> yeah, and I think the one of them that I heard was uh, like um, improper storage of a firearm. So it, yeah. it had nothing to do with the shooting. It was just it wasn't his. I guess he had more guns, or maybe they weren't stored properly. So kind of kind of weak, but uh, yeah, absolutely. But the guys in Okotoks were also not indigenous fellows that got shot at either, so it makes a difference there, I think. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. <laughs> well, and then interestingly enough, um, they are going to launch a investigation in Saskatchewan into the RCP handling of the Colton Bushy tri- uh, case right from the beginning to the end. And you know, I kind of. 
I have completely lost faith in these, you know, so-called independent um, in, inquiries into, uh, you know, police shooting or police handling of cases, uh, simply because they're all former police officers that are always investigating them. So I, I don't have a lot of faith. They always, they almost always find in favor of the police. Um, so my, 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 my outlook on that is not positive. I don't know. Do you have any different feeling on that? Well, I'm yeah, less than hopeful. But I mean, let let's play uh, devil's advocate for a minute and say they got investigated and found it was a total crapshoot and things we didn't you know add up. All that's going to come out of it is recommendations for change in the future. Yeah, exactly. And so nothing in the current court case will change. No. And then what will ever happen with those recommendations? Probably what happens with every time any arm of the government recommends something. Yeah. It goes on a nice shelf somewhere. Well, exactly. You know, in uh, a few years back, they had a case here in Alberta. Uh, Amber Takaro went missing. Um, and to try to help find her, they played this tape, which was the last recording of her. She was actually in the vehicle with the guy that murdered her. And she left, like, a voicemail for a friend. Uh, and the police admitted, the RCMP fully admitted, they completely destroyed ev- potential evidence. They mishandled it right from the get-go, and absolutely nothing was done. Not one thing was done. And to this day, I don't think they've found Amber Takaro. So, yeah, you know, I don't even think there was an independent investigation. I think the RCMP literally just came out and said, yeah, we totally messed that up. We walked on evidence. We we trashed her hotel room when we shouldn't have. Oh, well, what do you do? And that was it. Yep. So I, I have no faith in these independent investigations. Yeah, at best we'll get a report. That report will sit on the shelf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so yeah, a little update on you know the goings and going ons of what's happening after the Colton Bushy thing, and uh, I don't yes, know the the ever workings of our noble RCMP. Yeah, well, yeah, and they're gonna have a hell of a time now. I mean, the farmers are just gonna be shooting at everybody now. Like really, <laughs> so. I don't know. Yeah. Sucks to, well, I guess it sucks to be them. Yeah. They'll have to do some serious damage control, but the reality is is that's that's the real perception now from anybody I've talked to. You know, who who leans that way is, you know, might as well keep your best your you know, your favorite pistol by your nightstand and make sure, yeah, you, know, you know. Yeah. It looks like an accident and you're all good. Oh, absolutely. And uh well, but you know, I guess on the upside is the more shootings they have, the more RCMP can respond to them. And, you know, if they did handle the Colt, mishandle the Colton Bushy trial, which they did, or the case, they did, maybe they'll get lots of practice in handling cases, so maybe in five years they'll be really good at it. So, you know, yeah. there. I guess there's a positive to it. Yeah, all that really comes out of it is the police will say, we can't handle all these farmers with guns, so then we need gun control. <laughs> exactly. All these law-abiding citizens that like to shoot people on their property. Yeah, but that's legal. <laughs> well, it sure seems like it is now. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It's the wild, wild west again. Yeah, God bless Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's going to be like that everywhere now. I mean, there was a, you know, the newspapers here printing articles about the rising crime wave in rural Alberta. You know it's just to pump up people's fear and hate and... And get people trigger happy, so it creates more news. And like, it's ridiculous how they time these articles perfectly like that. 
Well, and the, the truth is that I live in a rural community and rural crimes are, are on the rise. But when you're comparing them to what goes on in urban centers, you, I mean, there's a great disparity. You're pretty safe living in the country. I mean, so sure, crime might be up, but up compared to what? Well, that's just it. And I mean, if it's property crime, it, I don't know. Like nobody's getting necessarily hurt from that. So, yes, it sucks. It, it, it costs you an insurance. Yes, that's terrible. But at the end of the day, I really don't think a quad is, or a skidoo is worth shooting somebody over. Well, and, and that's what we believe in Canada, and our laws should reflect that like we talked about in the last episode. But it, it's this perception that it creates is that there's rampant crime. Yeah. The RCMP are inept to respond to this crime rise. Yes. And so it's really up to you to protect your own property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's and and the thing. So what I find the saddest is that's the thing that the RCMP and the government's not coming out. That image isn't what they're trying to combat. Yeah, well, and they don't seem to really be trying to combat it. Like you said, they're not really putting the effort into it. So that's it's pretty sad. Yeah, but hey, we're we're going to be talking about the budget. So maybe there's a whole bunch of new money in there for that in the budget. Who knows? We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> so moving from that, uh, I seen on Facebook and stuff, there's a quote being shared around that Carolyn Bennett said, and I'm going to read it to you. It's, uh, nations will decide who their members are. The government of Canada will no longer decide. And I, I honestly, I laughed out loud when I read that. I thought it was a joke meme. I thought somebody just made it up. So I had to go check. Um, but she actually said that. And I find it hilarious because you contrast that to how they treat people that have yet to meet the Pauli criteria in the court or legal court system. And they kind of don't get to decide who their members are. So, I, well, I guess they can decide who their members are, but they won't get any help from the Alberta or the federal government as far as, you know, funding or recognition or anything. So maybe that's what well, you Well, I'm not actually sure what that even means. So... On, on an indigenous side. So if you're just talking about indigenous nations across the board, that's a big disparity. We have the, the as we know, the cartels, which have a very restrictive idea of well, who's Métis. Um, but as far as First Nations go, does that mean they're free to then re-enroll or re-accept uh, Everyone who has been disenrolled by the, the federal government is considered non-status Indians. You know, honestly, I, I think that uh, that was kind of the messaging is that, and obviously this is meant mainly for First Nations. Uh, let, let's just say that right out right now. Um, and I, I believe that was kind of their their promise is that, you know, well, no, you guys will get to decide who's on your, your, your band list again. Um, and you'll be in control of that. But again, maybe it's a promise that happens when. When is action going to be taken on that? I don't know. Are, is it really going to be what they said it is? Um, what kind of criteria are they going to put in that First Nations have to meet in order to decide who their members are? Like, there's a catch here. There just is. You know what. Um, well, for the, you got to remember, for the federal government, the catch is always in the funding. It's yeah. always about the dollars and cents. So if they open up a First Nations community's ability to, let's say it was a free-for-all, and every First Nations could control exactly who is and who's not members, 
I guarantee you it's going to be a total restriction of amount of, of funds allocated to that community on some other criteria than rather on how many people are in your community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, there's always, there's always a catch, right? They're never, they're never going to pay. Well, or are they going to force first nations to become like municipalities and force them into operating just like a municipality would where, you know, anybody can live in Calgary. There's no restriction on that. Just like anybody could go live on the Siksika Reservation. You have to let everybody in, anybody in, and you put them on your band list, and we'll pay you just like we do a municipality. But then you kind of are usurping the land, and you're going to a fee-simple title. You know, so there, there's going to be a hook in there, and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be some way to usurp that land um, and put them on a fee-simple rather than a reservation system. I just... That's my own thinking. I don't know. Maybe I could. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It'll be interesting to see. I know that the the problem with that is I know they want to do that, but up until this point, uh, every First Nations community has been super resistant uh, to that concept. So I'm not sure how eager they're going to be to try to cross that bridge again. Yeah, exactly. And because you know, right now they they actually have, have for years had a system where First Nations could get self-control over their money and that system meant that they had to sign on to turn their land over to fee simple uh they basically had to turn over everything to being a municipality really in the end that's what they ended up being very similar to a municipality um yeah well that that's what the government of canada has been trying to do since day one is roll i mean not day one but as soon as they figured out what it ended up the reserves being is still separate and outside of canada and they've been trying to get the reservations where little land is left re-enrolled underneath of the Canadian framework, and that's that's the final thing. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. and so I, I definitely see that that's going to be an attempt. I'm not sure at this juncture that they're going to be able to pull that off without huge resistance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And but I mean, you never you, you never know. They they got to try, right? <laughs> well, they got to try. Absolutely, they got to make statements and make it look like they're really doing some wonderful things. Um, and what this means for Métis people, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they are only really only deal with the cartel. And the cartel is, that leaves eight out of the 13 provinces and territories out in the cold anyway. So yeah. w- what does that really mean? I mean, you don't deal with any other organizations. So of course you're going to let the cartel determine who their members are. You do it now. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's what I find funny when it comes to Métis things. That's exactly how it works um, on the federal level. So the settlements are under the Settlement Act, and they they have their own council that determines their membership. But the reality is, on a federal level, there's only one government-funded uh, nation for Métis people. So, and they already determine their own membership, like you said. So I don't know what that means. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think it's. I, I think any other organization out there who's like thinking this might be a good. Uh, a little bit of hope for them to be able to get some government funding or get recognized, I, I really wouldn't get your hopes up because I really don't mm-hmm. think that... First of all, I don't even think the statement really applies to Métis. I don't think that was their intent. But at the end of the day, they're still going to walk out and just go to the cartel and leave the rest of us in the dark. So, hey, but they, they'll they let all of us determine our own members. They just won't do won't recognize them as Métis. So, yeah, that's right. 
Woohoo! Good for us. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like we've said before. Until Métis people want to unify behind, you know, leadership that's going to counter the the cartel, then we'll be left out in the cold. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a couple of things I, I kind of ranted about last week, and I just wanted to maybe get your what your thoughts on them. Um, talking about kind of you know Métis recognition and stuff. Uh, I had read an, an um, a post this guy made, and he had court cases, and he had lots of interesting statements. But um, the one thing he said was that the Métis settlements don't actually meet the Pauli criteria. And I wonder, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. Uh, I mean, what did you, what do you think of that? Well, in truth, that is exactly the thing: is there's no historical settlement of Métis people at Peavine. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, the reality is the settlements are a negotiation between the Métis people in Alberta and the Alberta provincial government. <clears throat> and they they allocated the land. The land specific isn't a historical Métis site. Yes. Because um, we look at Marlborough, which is just uh, out by Edson, used to be a Métis settlement. Yeah. Uh, that was, that's, I mean, it was a place where Métis people were. And they turned it into a settlement. The legislation and government changed, and now it's not a settlement. So, yeah. But the settlements, in the strictest sense, no, they don't meet the Pali test. Because, like, for example, the Peavine community, not to pick on them, but they there was not a historic community site there before the uh, settlement act came into being. Well, that's just it. And even even if there was, um, they were not a settlement until after crown control. So yeah. it kind of negates it right there. And that, I think that's the whole crux of it was that, you know, according to Pauli, you have to have that control of the area prior to crown control. And they simply did not have that. Um, and I think the, the, their criteria for living on the settlement was, was vastly different than Pauli. And so I think they're, from what I understand, they're trying to change that now. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is they're not meeting Pali criteria, which, you know, I said last podcast, I think it's hilarious that, you know, the Canadian government's come up with these criteria. The cartel is just all uh, all over that. Is That's the best thing in the world. And yet the only land-based Métis in Canada don't even meet that criteria. Like, kind of, uh, kind of a weird thing going on there. Well, it really shows the dichotomy of the message is that um, the, the Métis settlements, even their membership role for how you become a member at the Métis settlement is very different from the standards that the Métis National Council has yes. and its affiliates for who is Métis and who's not. So you're talking about identity politics. They both have different ideas yeah. of what makes someone Métis. <clears throat> and then the reality is the Métis lands in Alberta fall under the Act, the Settlement Act, which has nothing to do with Pali at all. Yes. So they have rights to the land, which are basically, I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, the Métis settlements are really like Métis reserves. And oh, so yeah. that that in and of itself is a totally different setup than this two-part criteria or three-part criteria that's set up under Pauli that the MNC tries to use to identify who's actually Métis or not. So even legally within Canada right now, we have two different... Um, terms for what makes someone Métis. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. what gives you rights and where you can exercise those rights and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes things nice and confusing. 
So, which, you know, again, I, I, I hate to be all conspiracy theorist and all that, but really it just keeps people fighting amongst ourselves about all of this stuff. And then we don't get together and we don't focus on the real issue, which is the government of Canada. So they, they benefit from this kind of split where they get to then sit back and watch us kick the ball around the field, but we never ever make it to the goal line. Well, the, the, yeah, and that's the real problem is the real problem is is the government has thrown a ball on the field and Métis are playing a game against themselves. Yes. Uh, we have, like we talked about before, we have people on Facebook and everyone else trying to, you know, browbeat and be belligerent and demeaning to everyone because they have this definitive idea of what it means to be Métis. Yes. But we, we can see legally in Canada, the, the idea of what it means to be a Métis person on a settlement is legal. Uh, the, the criteria that the Métis National Council has is 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 recognized as legal and the daniels decision recognizes metis people outside of those two organizations as legally metis so we have three different definitions absolutely uh, yeah. that are that are, are recognized within the legal canadian framework as what makes someone metis now that should bode well for metis people for us to be inclusive build bridges and unite to play a game against the government but instead we're kicking the ball back and forth against each other in a three-way game of soccer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and uh, you know, what I, what I find interesting is, is like, how then, now how long is it going to be before these those same people that attack the Eastern Métis, uh, those academics, those, you know, those real, you know, the Internet trolls, how long is it going to be before they start going after the people on the, on the uh, settlements? Um, because if they don't meet Pauli, well... A lot of those trolls and academics say, well, Pauli is the thing, man. So, you know, I, I feel bad, honestly, in a lot of ways, because it's only a matter of time before those set, people on the settlements start to be bear the brunt of that same hate and and garbage that's spewed by those people. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, because they didn't do anything to deserve it. It's the federal government, again, making these rules. And... You know about who is and who's not Métis. Well, and the government, by playing favorites at different levels of the government, by playing favorites, allows this con continued division. And yeah. I think that's the real problem. Is we see a lot of, and I think this is really the problem that we Métis people face is we're the road allowance people, and so we don't, we are missing that vital connection to possessing our own lands and the ability to exert autonomy over our traditional territories. And thusly, we have a lot of people today, especially younger people, you know, and by younger, I mean like the 40 and under crowd, who are, <laughs> are, are dis disconnected, though, from elders. Yes. They're disconnected from those circle teachings around the fire because we see a real split going on between when we hear elders talk and we hear, you know, what elders speak about identity and being Métis and community is a very different conversation than when we are confronted by academics and and younger people who are disconnected from those communities and those elders talk about Métis identity. Yeah, and there's absolutely. a huge a huge gulf right now in in that conversation, and that's what I find very disheartening. Is a lot of people of the younger crowd are very willing to uh, pontificate, quite frankly, about what it means to be Métis without ever any backing of a home community or home elders. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, the, for me, that's the hardest thing about the, these academics and stuff. And like you said, the younger crowd is, uh, 
it's it's basically erasing the Métis elder out of the equation. And, you know, so as Métis elders get old and they move on from this world, what are we going to be left with? We're going to be left with this one single narrative that's been created based on, you know, non-Indigenous, non-Métis history writings and people creating a Métis history that, 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 that is skewed from what it actually is because we stopped listening to elders. Um, and that's the the truly downside to, to what's going on right now. Yeah. By, by being divided, I think you and I talked about this um, before. And I think that's the real sad question is are academics, the new elders. Yeah. Um, is, is the university mentality of what makes people ethnogenesis and all these other fun terms. Is that how, and what defines us as Métis people now? Yeah, and exactly. is it academics that are going to define us and the book writers, they're going to define who we are and our future. And they think that's a scary thing because it disconnects us from elders and it disconnects us from the land. Absolutely. It's, it is a complete disconnect from where we, we as people started. Um, it's, we've become very disconnected with our first nations family. We've become disconnected from our Inuit families. We've been, and as these academics and, and all the internet trolls and all these people pro- propagate this, it just disconnects further and further and further. Until yeah, like we're so far away from where we started, it's not it, it isn't even recognizable. Well, and this is the real problem is, is that we've come to this crossroads of this intersectionality of of political you know wrangling of Métis people to get off the roadside, become players in the game, and and get something from the federal government, get our rights recognized, our lands back, and it has caused division and derision among our people. So much so that we have, even in Alberta, where you have the Métis settlements and you have the, the Métis Nation of Alberta, they're both even fighting each other for control of that land. So even though the land is allocated to the settlements under the Act, the MNA has repeatedly, through its own bylaws and processes and negotiations, with the provincial government tried to usurp that land yeah. and, and has failed several times and is now in negotiations to get its own land. Yeah. So, I mean, you think about that. So now we have Métis land for the settlements Métis. Now we have the Métis Nation of Alberta negotiating for land for those Métis. So now, again, we, we've got this intersectionality where if you're Métis, well, which land would you get to go to? Yeah. Which land do you have access to? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, so it's very competing. I mean, we used to be a unified nation. We used to be, you know, have a lot of camaraderie and a lot of bridge building and a lot of family ties. And I think that this is really coming unraveled. Absolutely. Yeah. So if there's anybody under 40 listening, get out there and talk to an elder. Damn it. Um, you better spend some time listening to an elder. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and then the other thing I wanted to, yeah, I had a good chuckle about this. The uh, Métis Nation of Alberta is doing a, you know, they're trying to con- come up with a constitution, whatever that means. Um, and I watched, I, I on the last podcast, I said I watched like five minutes of it, and the guy mentioned that uh, how awesome it is they're going to have a constitution and that, you know, Métis people have wanted this for 350 to 400 years They've wanted their own constitution, and I just started laughing because, you know, we're we're talking about the the different the, how many different definitions there are for Métis, and now the Métis Nation of Alberta guy 
who's trying to build a constitution for them, starts talking about Métis being back in, what, Acadia? In the East Coast? So, like, they're not even really... He, they're not following their own talking points on who what their definition of Métis is. I, I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but I, I thought it was quite funny. Yeah, I caught a little bit of it. I just, again, you know... It goes to show misinformation. I don't know if somebody hadn't read a history book, <laughs> you know, 350, 350 years ago. I'm not exactly sure which Métis people were traversing the rivers and and uh, the fur trade out west here that were talking about how much they really needed a constitution. <laughs> yeah, I actually had that conversation with somebody and we started laughing because we're trying to picture, you know, back on the you know the East Coast in 1628 when uh, non-Indigenous Europeans are starting to just show up. And as soon as they land, going, you know, you know what we need here. We need a good constitution. That's really what we need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just I'm, had a good chuckle about that. I'm, I'm a little lost, you know, in the Michif dialect or the Cree dialect. What's the word for constitution? <laughs> yeah, well, and who are these guys that, like, leaped over all of Eastern the eastern part of the continent right into the middle into Red River at 350 years ago. I Like, that's amazing on, how Darcy, they can you do don't, that. You don't, you don't know your Métis history. They spring from the ground. Oh, that's right, where the three rivers Red River is that, is that magical place that the rivers come together <laughs> and Métis people emerged there. Yeah, yeah. 350 years ago. <laughs> yeah, 350 years ago. There was no one there to document that, however, so we had to wait. You know, that's a good point. Right. There, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's it. Maybe that that's the part I'm missing is there was no no written history there, so. Yeah, we're just waiting for uh, J.R. Tolkien's next book, you know, that lost book to come out. So they're, you know, the Métis people. That's yeah. the Hobbiton and, and uh, <laughs> that Battle of the Lord of the Rings there. I'm sure the Métis people are there, too. Well, I I have no doubt that if there's a way to do it, the the current academics will certainly be writing books about that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. They will find a way. So, (laughs) um, there's a little bit of levity there for you. Now let's get into the real meat and potatoes of the biggest news here going on, and and, uh, I, which is the budget 2018 for Indigenous peoples, and we're just going to talk about the Indigenous peoples part of it. Um, for obvious reasons. And this is the budget that Chartrand was all rejoicing and the whole cartel is patting themselves on the back because it's so amazing. They're just, there's just a flood of money coming in. So I want to break it down, and I have a bunch of numbers here that I worked out. Um, so the first thing is, is the government, and I'm not going to go through all of them because some of them just simply don't apply to Métis people. Uh, but one, the first thing I thought was interesting is the government's promising 1.5 billion over five years to keep First Nations and Inuit families healthy in their communities. Um, and there is no mention of Métis in there, so we are not part of the 1.5 billion over five years for family health in our communities. So good job, cartel. I I don't know. Is that a Ooh. pat on the back thing? Well, it's pretty hard to fund communities that we don't have. <laughs> right. Uh, so the next thing is uh, $1.5 billion over 10 years dedicated funding to support distinctions-based housing strategies for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities. So 
I don't know even know what that means. <laughs> what the hell is distinctions-based housing strategies? Um, I'm, I mean, what I'm hoping is is that it's it's money allocated to to Métis people for housing. I mean, in its simplest terms. I'm hoping this, so too. Uh, the now, scary thing is, I know where that money is going to go. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though, is when you actually look at it. So one and a half billion, boy, that seems like a lot of money. But then you divide that by ten, so it's 150 million a year, which is still a pretty good chunk of money. But then you divide it by 634 reservations and however many Inuit communities are going to be getting this funding. And then you split it into the Métis people, the Métis nation, because the, the cartel, because they're the ones getting it. So $150 million divided by, say, I don't know, 700 communities? This really doesn't boil down to a whole lot, you know? Um, yeah, and, it's typical, and... I mean, the numbers always sound so huge, right? Yeah, oh, but yeah. Divide it by, but we forget we're not a small people. Like, if you take indigenous people in Canada, you're not talking about 50 people. <laughs> yeah. You're not talking about 500 people. You're not even talking about 5,000 people. Yeah. So a billion dollars. But a billion dollars isn't what it used to be. I mean, I mean, let's face facts. If, Darcy, if you want a million dollars from the lotto, how's your life really going to change? Well, that's just it. It's no longer your like a retirement win. Yeah, you might pay off your mortgage and, you know, take a little holiday. But after that, you better be real careful with the money. Yeah, exactly. So I just did the math. So $150 million divided by, say, 700 communities. Uh, you know, 634 reservations, however many many Inuit, the, the six cartel organizations. And that works out to about $200,000, a little over $200,000 per. Um now I'm thinking there's going to be communities that get higher amounts and ones that get less, but really two hundred two hundred thousand for housing strategies. Like, how many houses are you going to build for two hundred thousand dollars? Or well, is, is this even house, building houses? This says housing strategies. Is this just strategies? Yeah. <laughs> right. So for the Métis people in Alberta, um, since there's one only organization that the government talks to. You pretty much know where that money's going to go, and that's the Métis Housing Authority. So the real question is, what have they ever done for anybody? Exactly. That, that, stu- that, sorry, that housing authority is, uh, uh, you know, there's communities, Métis communities, that are living in abject poverty and certainly aren't getting any housing money. So it's just another 200000 that's not going to go where it's needed. So that's the distinction-based housing strategy. And we're going to get to more housing in a little bit here. Uh, the big... Oh, that's the next one, actually. Oh, look at that. The big one that the Métis Nation was really, and the cartel was really proud of themselves for was $516 million to support Métis Nation priorities, including housing, post-secondary, health, and whatever else. So those are only examples. That's not all of them. However, that, that's over 10 years. So again, you're down to 50 mil, like 51.6 million per year for housing, post-secondary education, health, and every other program. Well, okay, but then you divide that by what? Six organization. And, and, and you got to keep in mind, INAC's going to take a chunk of this for their bureaucracy. So what does that boil down to? You're going to... With uh, six organizations, you're looking at less than $10 million a piece 
if you get the whole amount and INAC doesn't take any, for housing, post-secondary, and health, you got less than less than ten million dollars. Like, again, these aren't not big numbers. These are not pat yourself on the back numbers. Well, I mean, it's not chicken feed. Ten million dollars is a lot of money. The, the problem sure I have is these are these are already multi-million dollar funded organizations who basically uh, got a ten million dollar boost to their bottom line. Yeah. The the other thing is, if you take that, so if, if you're looking at the Métis Nation of Alberta and you take ten million dollars, they're going to have their administration fee because they have to create boards or oversight committees or do whatever to allocate this funds, and then there's thirty three thousand Métis members. Yes. Well, so what exactly is there going to be for education? How many bursaries are there, is there going to be? Well, exactly, and. And the truth is, is even at ten million, like you know, say just under ten, that's not accounting for the amount that INAC's going to take for their administration of all this. And then, like you said, the Métis nations are going to take their cut for their administration. So realistically, I think you're looking maybe four to five million, split amongst things like housing, post-secondary, and health, which are the three biggest, probably biggest ones. Well, again, how many houses are you going to be building? Are you going to be sending that money to communities? Not likely. It's just going to go get absorbed into the organization as admin. And they'll probably pick up a few rental properties and a couple more bursaries. I don't even know what they're going to do for health. I don't know what that means. but Well, it's so. like you and I talked about. They'll probably, at best, roll out something like the be the Manitoba guys do and a basic group benefit plan if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you have, the, like you said, you have INAC that's going to take administration out of this. You have the Métis National Council that's taking administration. Then you've got Ontario, you know, Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, that all has administration yeah. for these programs. And if you're looking out over those portfolios of, of the education and health and you know, yada, yada, each one of those is an administrative body. Yes. So really, at the end of the day, out of 4 or $5 million, for the person living in the middle of nowhere like me, am I going to see any help? If I, you know, if I was an M&A member, am I, are my kids going to get a bursary out of this? Were they a couple hundred bucks, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and there might, there you know, there might be a few more bursaries they can apply for. But really, I mean... It certainly is not going to set the, the world on fire. And, and like I said, these are not numbers you should be patting yourself on the back for. Um, the next uh, the next item was uh, $248.6 million over three years to continue to support access to mental health and emotional support services for Indian residential school survivors and their families. So I did the math on this. Based on roughly about 86,000 survivors that are still alive, that works out to $963 per survivor per year for mental health and emotional support for themselves and their families. And I don't know what $963 of, of mental health and emotional support would buy. Um, I don't think that's going to go very far. So, <laughs> again, yeah, um... it's a ridiculously low amount. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and what was that? What's the term on that one again? It's uh, 248 over three years. So, again, I mean, so you're talking about 900 bucks for the next three years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Does that get you a grief counselor? You know, you might get you a shopping trip to the mall. I don't know. Like, well, and are these only survivors that were accessed through the TRC? Is it, what's the, what's the criteria for survivor? Because Métis were left out of the TRC, so are we left out of this too? I would suspect we well, probably are. So, yeah, you know, it, either way, they're still not talking big money. And then it doesn't, you know, again, it's a, a kind of a crapshoot because it doesn't really tell you how it's allocated, who's administrating it. Are exactly. they just going to write you a check? Exactly. And, and again, I'm not accounting for whatever amount INAC is going to take out of this to administer the program. They're probably going to yeah. have to hire 20 new staff guys in INAC just to administer the mental health and emotional support program. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, really like $1,800 over the next three years for 86,000 survivors. Like that's just, oh, that's not even funny. That's, that's kind of disgusting actually. Um, the next one was 23.9 million over five years to integrate indigenous views, history and heritage into national parks, marine conservation areas and historic sites managed by Parks Canada. So that works out to 4.78 million per year divided by the 214 properties that the National Parks manages. Yeah, I did some research. Uh, <laughs> it, it accounts to a whopping $22,000, a little bit over 22000 to bring in Indigenous views, history, and heritage into the National Park System in Canada. 22000 per park. Like, really? What does 22000 buy you these days? That well, won't even I mean, buy a I mean, set of steps out in the national park. You and I have been to Jasper and Banff and, you know, the biggest parks in, in Canada just about. And you, you think, how are you going to include, you know, specific Métis things into the park? I, what would, I don't even know what that gets you. Well, I, I can guarantee what it's going to be is, the, I'm going to use Banff as an example. There's a museum in Banff, so it's probably going to be well, I think there already is an indigenous section, but maybe they'll get a little, a little bit more money. Maybe another five thousand dollars over five for in the next five years for the indigenous section. Uh, there'll be a couple more plaques put up somewhere, uh, denote, denoting some indigenous thing that happened, and maybe one of those roadside signs at a pull-off saying, "Hey, did you know that this is where indigenous people used to paddle across the river?" and they're going to spend their $22,000 a year pretty quick if they're going to put up plaques and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Make some good flyers, a couple good signs, you know. Oh, yeah. A few good, a few good posters, and that'll be about that. Yeah. You know, you got the Banff Hot Springs, so they'll put up another a little plaque there saying this is, you know, where Indigenous people used to come for their medicine water, and um, yeah. that plaque will probably cost you twelve grand. Well, there's om- there's over half your budget right there. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that was a ridiculous one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pretty pretty low end uh, amounts here. Yeah, another one that I thought was interesting was 101.5 million over five years to support the capacity building efforts of indigenous groups that are seeking to rebuild their nations in a manner that responds to the unique needs and priorities of their communities. So, again, sounds really cool, 
but what in the hell does rebuilding your nation mean? Does that mean, as Métis people who are currently unrecognized by the government, say Acadians or, or whoever else, we're going to get some capacity funding to actually have an office and get members and start rebuilding the, our people together? I, I don't think that's what it means. But then well, again, oh, yeah. go ahead. Well, the other thing is, is again, they don't specify if it's for any one party. It's just capacity funding for any one nation to rebuild whatever yes. that means. You know. And you and I both know that the largest of the three groups is First Nations communities. Yes. So even if the, even if the Acadians, for example, or our kin in, in Quebec could band together and apply, what are they actually going to see at the end of the day? Exactly. Well, and, and what does rebuilding your nation mean? Does that mean language programs? Does that mean cultural programs? Does that mean, like, like what does that mean? Um, and $100 million over five years, so that's $20 million a year. There's 634 reservations right now. $20 million divided by 634 is not a lot of cash, let alone, are Métis even going to have access to this? Are Inuit going to have access? <laughs> like, we are literally talking peanuts here, people. Like, crumbs. Exactly. I mean, in all honesty, like for us specifically, uh, who are trying to bring together the disenfranchised Métis people left out, 114,000 Métis people in Alberta, only 33,000 are part of the, the MNA. Uh, what are what are we going to be able to do? Yeah, you know, exactly. Get twenty, get twenty bucks. <laughs> like really? Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, so it's it works out to thirty one thousand, little over thirty one thousand, if you just look at First Nations and the reservations. So it's going to be even less if you include the cartel. It's going to be even less if you include Inuit communities. And then we're not talking about, um, you know, the Métis in the Northwest Territories that, that technically, I guess, are recognized by the government as well. So, I mean, so that whittles that down to what? Maybe maybe you get $28,000 to rebuild your nation? Wow. You're going to do a whole lot of rebuilding for twenty eight grand. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> it's hardly even a full-time wage anymore for a person. Well, exactly. Um so then, uh, uh, there's only, I have a few more here. Uh, $800 million over five years to improve health outcomes of First Nations and Inuit. Again, not Métis. Mm-hmm. $4 billion over 10 years from social and green infrastructure funding to build and improve infrastructure in First Nations and Inuit communities. Not Métis. Yeah, because we, we don't have any communities. Well, even, but look at the settlements. Settlements aren't going to get any of this. Nope. You know, so because <laughs> they fall under different legislation, they do, and, and they're that specifically says First Nations and Inuit, not not Métis. So not Métis, yep. Um, Again, sitting on the road allowance. Absolutely, and then two hundred and twenty-five million over the next eleven years. <laughs> oh my goodness! To improve housing for Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis not living on reserve. That works out to thirty-two thousand per year for reserve, you know, based on the amount of reserves and settlements there are. And I know that says not living on reserve, but seriously, like, like two hundred and twenty-five million over eleven years. <laughs> like, 
What is that? What is that going to buy you? Well, the reality is, is let let's be honest. They, what does this term have left in it? Two years. Yeah. If we got them reelected, that's then we're we're at six. Yeah. I guarantee you, they probably won't be in back after that. Which means that, how do you protect that funding for eleven years? Exactly. Exactly. Like. Uh, you know, but and they lump everybody together like that. Like it, it means nothing. Like that money is going to be just chewed up in administration costs. That's really what that is. Yeah. Like not one dime of that will actually go to provide um, any type of housing to anybody living off reserve or settlement. Yeah, and I mean, I and I mean, so what is what does it mean, Métis living not living on reserve? Like. W- w- how does a Métis person even claim this money? It doesn't even make sense because we, we only have the settlements. Uh, I guess if you're living off settlement. I don't know. It's just uh, it's crazy numbers. And I only got two more here. So, you know, for those of you not really keen on math, just stick with us. Um, <laughs> so 120.7 million, and, and I thought this was a really important one, especially with respect with what's happened lately. But 120 million over five years to address the overrepresentation of indigenous peoples in the criminal justice and correction systems. Now, um, Alberta just got found out that they don't even report how many indigenous are incarcerated. They purposely are leaving those numbers out. So that skews these numbers. But that kind of money amounts to $38,000 per reservation. So... Um, how? What are you going to do for $38,000? You literally can't even hire st- uh, one staff member to try to work on this problem for 38000 a year. Like, that's... I mean, I guess you could, but they wouldn't be making much money. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that the challenge is, if you look what this is allocated to, this probably isn't going to go to any Indigenous party, but is really going to go right into the coffers of the court system. Absolutely. Yeah, like, and this so, is a major, major problem, and you're allocating peanuts to it. Like, well, and not only allocating peanuts to it, the only people who are going to get paid out of the money isn't any indigenous community. This is a lawyer issue. Absolutely, yeah. And so that's a, a big funding boost, really, to the legal system. Yeah. Well, and what is, again, what does address the overrepresentation mean? What does that mean? Does that mean... You're actually going to fix it, or you're going to do a study on it? I, I don't even know what that means. So again, it's really vague. It, it really doesn't say what they're going to do. Um, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, and then the last one that I had, which it was announced before, so I don't know why, maybe it's just kept in this budget, but... $84.9 million over five years to support Métis National Council and its governing members build their governance capacity and work towards Métis self-governance. So if INAC doesn't take any of that, that accounts to $2.83 million per year per cartel organization. Um, so, you know, uh, basically what this is going to do is, Bill, is get them, they're going to be able to hire a bunch more staff and maybe get some office renovations, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Well, only only if that's the, the thing I was unclear about that announcement, if that was only above and beyond the funding that they're getting right now, or if this is the n- next wave of funding that they're getting for capacity funding. Well, 
I think what you're going to find is they probably lose some of the other funding they get to get this capacity funding as a representative organization. Because I'm, from my understanding, is the cartel doesn't get representative funding. They get funding through various other areas of the government. So I suspect what this is, is it's going to be an amalgamation of the funding that they get into one, but they lose the five other streams. So if they're getting $4 million now, does that mean they're dropping down to $2.83 million? Or is this, or is it actually on top of everything they're getting? And I suspect it's probably not on top of everything else. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Because then really... It means, like I think in Alberta, that their administration costs pretty much stay right where they're at. Yeah, and uh, you know, looking at Alberta's numbers, they get the vast majority of their their funding from the Alberta government. Uh, the, the, yeah. the Canadian government doesn't actually pony up that much compared to what the Alberta government does. So, but but I mean, the governments aren't going to pay for things twice. So, if you're getting capacity funding over here, well, they're not going to give you capacity funding again. That doesn't. That is not how government funding works at all. So I have a suspicion what they're going to do is cut out all the other capacity funding and say, you get this one payment, not three now, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, realistically, uh, you know, if there's whatever, 600 to 700,000 Métis, whether, depending on how you want to define them, um, like 2.83 million per organization, realistically, isn't actually that much money, Um you know, I, but hey, maybe maybe the presidents will get raises. We can only hope. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not lots of money, but I guarantee you the uh, the top brass at these organizations are making a lot more money than you and I are. Absolutely, and I bet you their travel and, and budgets are up. Yeah, no kidding, and they're probably making a lot more money than uh, most of the Métis people we know. Absolutely, and and again, you guys, you know, for those listening, you got to remember that this is for governance capacity. So that is. That means that money's allocated not for any benefit of any Métis Nation member. You are not going to see a dime of that roll into any, any community. It is purely for governance. So however the organizations determine that they want to govern. Um, so it's going to mean more staff. It's going to mean more bureaucracy, more overhead. And But that's what the money's for. It's not for programs and services. Not for cultural well, we'd events. Be, we'd be lucky if it meant more staff and more of those things. What I'm probably betting is it's just more of what you got already. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. So if you're happy with the level of governance you have, that's what you can expect in the future. Yeah, and and don't expect them to be paying for any cultural events, programs, nothing. This is just just to cover the well, bureaucracy. If you're looking at all the things that you read off of all those things, very few things went uh, or were specifically allocated for um, culture. Absolutely. And, and you know, I did skip over a, a whack load of stuff, but a lot of it was like, you know, clean drinking water, um, First Nations Child and Family Services, uh, Indigenous Youth and Sport Programs, um, Research Programs, Statistical Capacity Development those kinds of things. So, but those all of almost all of the other stuff that I skipped over was almost exclusively for First Nations and a little bit of Inuit. Um, and the status of Women Canada is going to get a little bit of a boost over the next five years, which is good. That one is good. I'm I'm happy to see that. 
Um, but really, the rest of this, there's actually very little Métis stuff, and what there is is a lot of it's lumped in with everybody else, so you're going to get peanuts. And here you got guys, these presidents, patting themselves on the back like they they achieve some massive, huge victory for Métis people, and it's like, Métis people aren't even going to see most of that money. That's just going to be eaten up in red tape and, and administration. So, woo. <laughs> Keep on trucking. Yep. Well, I, I, if you were a government body, I mean, this is what you and I have talked about before. This is how colonial the MNC structure is and the cartel structure is. They are patting themselves in the back. They are doing a happy dance because let's face facts, like any bureaucracy, any top-down organization, these guys are now laughing their asses off all the way to the bank because look at how well-funded their bureaucracy now is. Yes. But and what changes for the guy at the bottom? Nothing. Exactly. You just got more expensive government. Yeah. Well, and then, like you said earlier, what's going to happen when this current government gets out of power? All that funding is going to get cut. So then you're going to get layoffs, you're going to get reduction... And you're going to be back into this swing of up and down and funding cut and funding given, funding cut. I mean, this is the nonprofit funding world of we got our funding, we lost our funding, we got it, we lost it. I mean, that's the roller coaster ride of nonprofits. These guys talk about being their own government, they're in the nonprofit funding cycle. That's all they are. Um, well, exactly. We're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that, uh, I mean, at best case scenario, based on the, the history of politics in Canada, we're going to get the, the Liberal government back, back in for another four years, which guarantees the, the good times will roll, if you want to call them that, for the, the Métis National Council. And it's budgeting. And after that, you know that the Conservatives are going to get back in and they're going to pull in the fiscal reins and they're going to say, oh, we're in debt. Oh, yeah. We've got to cut it all back, just like they did last time. <laughs> and that's the roller coaster of the Canadian government. We spend into debt, then we cut. Then we spend, and then we cut. Yeah. You know? Well, and, blue and guy, they, red guy, blue guy, red guy. That's how yeah. this goes. And they don't actually cut the funding. They cut the funding for programs like these, then they just give it to other programs they think are more important. And then the red guys get in, and they cut the fundings for those programs, give it back to these ones. So it's just back and forth, but... That is just a nonprofit world. That's the world you live in. In nonprofit, is the is constantly scrambling for funding. I mean, if these guys want to call themselves their own governing nation organizations, you got to have more than than government, um, you know, crumbs every few years. You just have to. Well, and you and I have talked about this. If we want to be truly the people that own ourselves, we shouldn't be depending on government funding at all. No, we should we should be able to find source and network with our own people, our own businesses, our own communities to make this happen for ourselves in spite of the federal government. Money from them is nice. But like you said, it just comes with strings and we're going to watch it come and we're going to watch it go. We've seen in Alberta the whole cycle uh, with nonprofit organizations and ones that are very close to us. You know, you look at culture camps and like that, they have funding and now they don't. Yeah. You know, this is not a, a cycle of saying, how do we have true self-governance if that governance is only as good as the government that funds us? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I then mean, we're not truly self-governing. No. No, we're not. We're just we're just simply non-profit program providers that uh, have come into more funding. 
but that's it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think this is uh, pat yourself in the back worthy. I was, I, I laughed when I, I found out how much, how much these people were celebrating. Uh, I truly hope that some of this money finds its way to help people, but I, the cynical aspect of me says, fat chance with that. So, oh, but that was a lot of stuff to cover. That was a lot of math to do, and I hope we didn't bore everybody too much. Uh, any, uh, I guess, last thoughts or any comments on anything, Jason? Well, if you don't like our uh, Debbie Downer uh, take on uh, boohooing about this money and how you're not going to see any, by all means, go on Facebook. There are lots of uh, people clogging up the groups saying how wonderful it is. So if you need a much rosier view, uh, by all means, return to your previously tuned station. That's right. Um, <laughs> I should have had some music playing, and every time we talked about something, just went wah, wah, wah. Yeah, no doubt, eh? <laughs> A little Debbie down for you. Vote the size of it. But I, honestly, I think that's the reality is I think that there's the shows the real dichotomy of how there's very privileged Métis people out there who are disconnected from the grassroots. And, um, and we're going to have a hard time pulling those grassroots together to really make a change, but I don't see another way around it. I don't either. And, uh, you know, I, I just... I want to be positive about things, and, and like I said, I truly hope that some of this money finds its way to help people, but I it, it hasn't really done much in the past. I've seen communities that are under Métis Nation of Alberta rule, and let's just say it, it kind of killed my optimism that there was any hope for change there. Um, you know, last week I talked about a lot of things that are going on in the, in the vast, wondrous world of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and there's just controversy after controversy after upheaval after unhappiness. Uh, and, you know, right or wrong, like I said before, if you're kicking elders out of your office for trying to ask questions, you have gone down the wrong road. And that's where we're at. We're on the wrong path. Um, so, I don't know. Well, I think that's just it. I think if I think Métis people may have spent far too long on the side of the road, and we need to check our own... Um, colonization you know yeah i think we got a lot of privileged maintaining uh, people out there trying to tell us how it's supposed to be and not enough sitting in real communities or around real circles of, of learning yeah but it's going to be a tough road to haul because all the money's going to the top absolutely and and i guess to to leave the show on a little bit brighter note i would say to everybody you know all we tried to do here tonight was highlight and use some critical thinking on you know the budget numbers and that's really what we try to do in this show is, is begin conversations that we want you to continue in your own communities with amongst your friends, your, you know, your fellow Métis. So go do that. Go find out where this money's going to go. Go hold your organization accountable. I, I, I challenge you to go do it and see how it works out. And, you know, and then if we're wrong, come back and send us an email and let us know how wrong we were in a year or two or maybe 11 depending on when the funding comes through uh, <laughs> but uh send us an email metispodcast at gmail.com and let us know how what you what your results were um because i encourage you to speak up at meetings and, and go to meetings and get involved and and show us that these numbers are actually making making a difference to people so there's your high, there's your ending on a high note for you that's all we're here for get people involved absolutely 
And I think that's it. So for Jason and I, I hope you guys have a great next week. Uh, now get out there and be the change you want to see. And that's it. The jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses. A fire that ignites in our hearts.